Well, if you have a Bible, if you would open it up to Leviticus chapter 11 or thereabouts, I think it'll be helpful to you to have that open as we're jumping around in these chapters this morning. The plan is to consider Leviticus chapters 11 through 15. Now, during the summer when I was in college, I worked as a garbage man for the local municipality where I grew up outside of Philadelphia. And I remember my first day on the job learning an important lesson. And that lesson was, you're going to get that on you. <laughs> right, you could be careful. You could try to ex you know, empty people's trash into the truck with an extended arm, keeping it as sort of far away from you as possible. But in the end, there's no way to do the job that didn't involve getting that on you. Now, I realize, having sort of thought through this this week, that trash collection works a bit differently these days. Uh, in our neighborhood, someone just pulls up with a truck and a robotic arm and just sort of dumps it into the top. But I did also notice some people still kind of old school riding on the back of the truck like we used to in the 1990s. Right? In those days, you would dump the trash out of the can by hand into the rear of the truck. A, a blade would come down, sort of swallow the contents and crush them into the, the body of the truck. And that worked great for sort of containing solid materials. But as the, as the blade crushed everything, all of the sort of fetid garbage liquid would, would sort of ooze down into the, the hopper and collect there at the bottom. And so when the truck was driving along, it would make a sudden stop. That sort of lake of wretchedness would, would slide forward, hit the blade, and then come launching out the back of the truck, which you don't notice when you're in a car behind the truck. But if you're sitting on the back of the truck, and let's say you're not experienced, this is your first day on the job, right? you're not aware that you need to be alert and nimble when the truck comes to a stop, otherwise you are soaked in trash juice. But even once I learned how to avoid those pitfalls, there was really, in the end, no way to make it through a day on the trash truck without getting it all over you. Right? In order to spend the day in a world of trash, hauling cans, riding the truck, going to the dump, you were going to have to accept the fact that you were probably going to go home at the end of the day covered in garbage. And that, of course, presented another problem, which was if you spend your day, right, a third of your hours covered in garbage, how do, you, how do you manage to get that smell out of your hair and off your clothes and off your skin once you get home? I remember one day that first summer, Karen was in town. She was studying organic chemistry over the summer, and so she took a break and left town and came up and was staying at my parents' house, and I got back from work, and she met me in the driveway, and when I got within about 25 yards of her, she, she waved at me and just said, look, I'm not trying to be mean, but don't come near me, right? Not until you've cleaned up. I can't, I can't talk to you until you've taken a shower. And so every day when I would get home from work, I would have to hose off outside just to go inside to take a shower, right? And it still felt like it took a couple of hours for that sort of lingering smell uh, to finally dissipate so I could get on with my life. Okay, so that's gross, but I've got worse for you today. Because in the book of Leviticus, uh, we see that the people of Israel had a problem in their relationship with God. Yahweh had chosen them. He had delivered them from slavery in the land of Egypt. He had brought them out into the wilderness. And as we saw last week in Leviticus chapter 9, he was dwelling in their midst, in the tabernacle, as their God. And that's really what we've been aiming for up until this point in the story. That's been the point of the Bible, 
up until Leviticus 9. We have Abraham's descendants living in the presence of God's glory, enjoying his beauty and his kindness and his protection and his provision, right, getting ready to go out into the next adventure, entering into the promised land. But there was a problem. They were sinful people living in a world cursed by sin. And as such, they weren't fit to live in his presence. The Lord is simply too holy. And so unholy people can't just walk into his presence, right? Any more than you could go into outer space in your gym clothes. And so far in the book of Leviticus, we've seen the, the need for the people of Israel to offer all sorts of sacrifices. We've seen the need for a priest, someone who's appointed by and accepted by God to go before him on behalf of the people. And today we're going to see in our passage the need for the people of Israel to be made clean. Right, just like I spent the day around garbage and wound up smelling like garbage, so sinners living in a sin-sick, sin-cursed world, well, they're unclean. The people of Israel were impure, defiled, unprepared for this life that they'd been called to. Life lived in God's presence. And so in our passage for this morning, we're going to see that God graciously provides a way for his people to be made clean. So again, if you have your Bible open, Leviticus chapter 11 through chapter 15, we see a series of laws and a series of commands regarding things that made you ritually, ceremonially unclean. And then we also see some provision for how they were to become clean. So let me just give you a sort of 30,000 foot overview of our, our chapters here. There in chapter 11, if you have your Bible open to Leviticus 11, you see a long list of laws about what kind of foods could be eaten and which couldn't be eaten. So some animals were considered clean and they could be eaten by the people of Israel. Others were unclean. So let me just give you a brief example there in Leviticus chapter 11, starting in verse three. The Lord says, whatever parts the hoof and is cloven footed and chews the cud among the animals, you may eat. Nevertheless, among those that chew the cud or part the hoof, you shall not eat these, the camel, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. And the rock badger, because it chews the cud but does not part the hoof, is unclean to you. So I'm not an animal expert. Apparently, cows and sheep and goats part the hoof and are cloven-footed and chew the cud, whereas things like pigs and camels and rock badgers do not. Right? And so the, the first group was clean, that could be eaten by God's people. Uh, the second, and a, there's a long list of things, uh, were unclean and could not be eaten. So in any event, at the end of this chapter, at the end of chapter 11 in verse 46, we have this sort of summary. This is the law about beast and bird and every living creature that moves through the waters and every creature that swarms on the ground to make a distinction, so this is the important part, between the unclean and the clean and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. So that's the purpose of chapter 11, to distinguish between unclean and clean foods. What kind of living creatures the people of Israel are allowed to eat, the clean ones, and which ones they're not allowed to eat. There in chapter 12, it's a brief chapter, you see a series of instructions about how a woman can be made ritually clean after giving birth to a child. 
So again, just to give you a brief sense of what it says there, in Leviticus 12, verses 1 to 4, we read this. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If a woman conceives and bears a male child, then she shall be unclean seven days. As at the time of her menstruation, she shall be unclean. And on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Then she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. She shall not touch anything holy, nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying are completed. So as you read on in that chapter, there are other stipulations about other circumstances, uh, the birth of a female child, uh, a list of sacrifices that are to be offered. Uh, this little chapter, chapter 12, it's brief, but it becomes a plot point, you might remember, in uh, the Gospel of Luke, in Luke's account of Jesus' life. He shows us in chapter 2, Joseph and Mary bringing the infant Jesus to the temple to perform the various rites that are prescribed here in Leviticus 12 after his birth. Luke is showing us that this is a law-keeping, faithful, obedient family. In chapters 13 to 14 of Leviticus, you have a series of laws about infections, leprosy. At the beginning of chapter 13, uh, you have various kinds of ways that skin diseases might manifest themselves, right? And which kinds make you unclean and what it looks like to be considered recovered from those various diseases. So again, just for one example, I'm not going to read uh, everything here, but in, in Leviticus 13, starting in verse 9, when a man is afflicted with a leprous disease, he shall be brought to the priest and the priest shall look. And if there is a white swelling in the skin that has turned the hair white, and there is raw flesh in the swelling, it is a chronic leprous disease in the skin of his body, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. He shall not shut him up, for he is unclean. Towards the end of that chapter in Leviticus 13, uh, 47 to 59, you have laws for garments or, or blankets that had some kind of pollution in them. Uh, in chapter 14, you have procedures for how the priests were uh, to help people who had recovered from these kinds of skin diseases become ritually clean again. At the end of chapter 14 in verses 33 to 57, if you look there, you have procedures for situations where a house had some kind of impurity in it. Maybe think like black mold would be for us. Right? There's all different sorts of ways of, uh, of um, fixing that problem, remediating that from you know, a little plaster job all the way to tearing everything down. And then at the end of uh, chapter 14, you have a kind of summary. So again, in verse 54 of Leviticus 14, this is the law for any case of leprous disease, for an itch, for leprous disease in a garment or in a house, and for a swelling or an eruption or a spot to show when it is unclean and when it is clean. This is the law for leprous disease. So that's really chapters 13 to 14 summarized for us. Then in chapter 15, you have laws about bodily discharges. So we read there in verses 2 to 3 of Leviticus 15. Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. And this is the law of his uncleanness for a discharge. Whether his body runs with his discharge or his body is blocked up by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. So that's kind of a broad category. There in verses 16 to 18, you have specific instructions about a man who has an emission of semen. In verses 19 to 24, you have laws about a woman's menstrual blood. In verses 25 to 30, uh, laws about other kinds of blood discharges. 
And then again in verse 32 of chapter 15, we have another kind of summary statement. This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an emission of semen becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity. That is for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. Okay. So if that's a 30,000-foot overview of what's in these chapters, then the question for us is, what does that have to do with us? Right? These rules and regulations might seem to modern ears to be somewhere between strange, pointless, misogynistic, and just gross. And in one sense, these instructions don't apply to us anymore. And, and we'll talk about why in a minute but they do represent a really important development in the history of God's redemption. And they do reveal very important truths about God's character and about how human beings can approach him despite their sin. And I hope by the end of this time in Leviticus 11 to 15, we'll see clearly that, that these laws show us something very important about the work of the Lord Jesus. So we don't have time to do a deep dive on each of these laws. When you're approaching a book like Leviticus, you have really one of two choices. Either you go all the way in on everything, uh, or you just sort of do the big picture. And so we're choosing to do the big picture here. Uh, you could do a, a deep dive on why sort of each particular thing was listed the way it is. But, but what I'd like to do is I don't really have a specific outline this morning. I'd just like to unpack a few ideas that I think will help us understand what's going on in these chapters. So again, not a ton of specifics about each specific skin disease, but really let's look at the big picture and see what, in, in what ways these laws were meant to function in the life of Israel and what they teach us as God's people about the work of Christ. So first is I think we need to understand what is meant by clean and unclean. Right? You see these concepts all through these chapters. Certain foods are clean. Cows, sheep, goats, quail, fish, crickets... Other kinds are unclean, pigs, crustaceans, vultures, bats. Certain things made you unclean. So childbirth, as I said, chapter 12, makes a woman unclean for a certain period of time. Right? A, a, a variety of normal bodily functions would make you unclean for the rest of the day. Right? But then on the other hand, certain kinds of skin diseases if they didn't spread, were, were declared clean after a certain amount of time. And so I think it, has a, a, it helps us to have some sense of what these terms mean. What, is, what does Leviticus mean? What does God mean when he says, this is clean and this is unclean? And here you have to step back and get the bigger picture. So I have a chart for you, in case you're kind of a visual learner. This is ad adapted from uh, Gordon Wenham's commentary on Leviticus. So if you are helped to see things visually, we're going to put this up for you. Right? Leviticus and the tabernacle system presents us with a world that is divided into two realms. Right? You see those sort of shaded in gray in the middle of that chart. Right? There is the realm of holy. Right? This contains things that are particularly set aside for the Lord. These are things that are specially marked out as belonging to the Lord. You also have the realm of the common. So you have the, the realm of, the, I guess on your, for you it's on this side probably. Yeah, that's right. Holy over here, and then over here, the realm of the common, right? Anything that's not holy is common. So last week, we saw the tabernacle, 
and the utensils and all the altars that were in it. We saw them consecrated. Do you remember that? By various sacrifices and anointings. That was a way of marking them off as holy. That was a way of saying these things are particularly set aside for the service of the Lord in the tabernacle. So you have two spoons, one of them's consecrated, it's made holy. It has to stay in the tabernacle. You can't use it to eat your cereal, right? It is is set aside for the Lord, right? This other spoon made of the same material, it's common. It's just a normal spoon. Holy things had to stay in the tabernacle. They had to be in the realm of God's presence. If for some reason they had to come out, they had to be completely destroyed so that no one could use them, right? To take something holy, and to use it for a common purpose, even if it's not a wicked purpose, to take, to take a spoon that had been consecrated to the Lord from the tabernacle and, and to use it to eat your cereal in your house was to profane it. It was to take something holy from the realm of the holy and make it common. So that doesn't mean common things are necessarily morally bad. It just means that they're not specifically devoted to, specifically involved in the service of the tabernacle, in the presence of God. So you have these two realms, the holy and the common, and there's a barrier between them. There's space, right? In order for common things to be made holy, they have to be sanctified, consecrated. They have to be, they have to be changed sort of in their ritual category by means of sacrifices and washings, right? We saw that last week as, as the things in the tabernacle were consecrated. And then, this is important for our understanding of our passage, within the realm of the common, so over here, you have two categories. You have the clean and you have the unclean. So if holy and common indicate someone's status, clean and unclean indicate their condition. To be clean means that you're fit to be brought into the presence of God. It means that it is possible for you to be sanctified, to be made fit, to come into the tabernacle. But to be unclean was to be impure. It was to be disqualified, unable to approach God. In a sense, you can think of clean as a category of things that keeps holy separated from unclean, right? So in terms of understanding all these laws in Leviticus 11 through 15, the Lord is laying out what kinds of things would make an Israelite in that far category of unclean, ritually impure, disqualified from coming into the tabernacle, right? If you're unclean, you have to stay at a distance. You cannot come near that which is holy, right? That's what the little incident at the end of, or the beginning of chapter 10 taught us, where Nadab and Abihu came into the, Lord, into the presence of the Lord, right? But they weren't, they weren't yet consecrated. They weren't sanctified. They weren't authorized to do this. They brought strange fire and they died on the spot. Many people say that these laws, which seem to be kind of stuck down in the middle of chapter 10, and then we're going to see the story gets picked up again in chapter 16, really are in a sense a a response to the fact that there are now two dead bodies in the tabernacle, right? Nadab and his brother are dead. And so the Lord is, is telling the people of Israel, okay, here's how you make things that are unclean, clean. In any event, we read in chapter 12 about a woman who's unclean because she's given birth there in verse 4. Then, as we read earlier, she shall continue for 33 days in the blood of her purifying. What does that mean? She shall not touch anything holy because she's unclean. She's on the far side of that chart. Nor come into the sanctuary until the days of her purifying, till she's been made clean, are completed. 
Then in chapter 13, we read about people with leprosy in verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose and shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Right? He's, he's so unclean that he can't even come into the camp, let alone near the tabernacle. Right? The idea is that being ritually unclean meant that you had to keep your distance from anything that was holy. Right? In the case of lepers, you had to stay out completely outside the camp of Israel entirely. Right, in the case of childbirth or other discharges, it meant that you weren't able to come into the tabernacle for worship until you were clean. Most of the time, that was just the next day. Uh, in certain circumstances, it was weeks or months. Right, this is made explicit there in Leviticus 15, verse 31. We read this, the Lord says, Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness, by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. Right, so to be unclean means to be unfit for the presence of God. It means to be separated and kept at a distance. Right, to approach God in your uncleanness is to die. Right, God is holy and pure and undefiled. And that which is unholy and impure and unclean and defiled cannot come near him, cannot dwell in his presence. Right? The presence of a holy God in the midst of pe the people of Israel, which is the greatest imaginable blessing that the Bible can, can portray. Right? This is the great point that we've reached at the end of Leviticus 9. Well, the presence of the Lord meant that anything impure, anything defiled, anything unclean had to be kept at a distance. Okay, so if that's what we mean by clean and unclean, what's the reason why certain things make you unclean? Why do childbirth and leprosy and discharges of all sorts make you ritually unclean? Why would eating pork make you unclean? It seems to me this is one of our big obstacles as modern people coming to what seems like a, a, a fairly random group of laws. Right? It seems like this is random, uncharitable, maybe a bit prudish and squeamish, again, maybe even sexist at times? Well, there's no real clear explicit reason that's given to us here. Right? The Lord doesn't really say, hey, this is why this thing makes you unclean. But I think we can get a sense for what's going on. So when it comes to the food laws in chapter 11, a few different theories have been offered about why certain foods are clean and certain are other, so uh, certain are unclean. So one theory is that uh, certain animals would have been associated with death in the minds of the Israelites. Uh, animals that eat carrion or, or scavenge on the seafloor. Uh, others have suggested that certain animals were associated with the religious practices of the Canaanite religions in the region. And so the Lord wants Israel to, to stay at a distance from those. Uh, others have suggested that there's a hygienic purpose behind these food laws that some animals were particularly unsafe to eat, and thus the Lord wants his people to avoid them. Uh, others have suggested there's a natural quality to clean animals, but there's something about the animals that are sort of listed as unclean uh, that makes them unnatural, the way their legs work or the way their, their feet or skin operates. Uh, most recently, some scholars have suggested there's a sense 
here of what's sort of normal food to an Israelite. I think every culture has some sense of what animals are appropriate for food, right? So in America, the idea of eating a dog or a horse or a cat seems to us unnatural, right? There are, there are places in the world where it's not. We might find the idea of eating grubs or insects repulsive, but in other places, that's food, right? So the idea is perhaps here what we see is just a codifying of what would have been instinctual for people, right? You eat fish, you eat sheep, you eat quail, you don't eat pigs, you don't eat crabs, you don't eat vultures. Whatever the specific reasons are for these food distinctions, it does seem that the, the common theme is death. The food laws, in the end, are really about coming into contact with death. Right? We don't really think about it very often because we just buy our meat from the grocery store for the most part, but to eat an animal is to touch a carcass. Right? There's this repeated refrain in chapter 11 that connects the idea of unclean food with death. So Leviticus 11 verse 7 says this, And the pig, because it parts the hoof and is cloven-footed but does not chew the cud, is unclean to you. You shall not eat any of their flesh, and you shall not touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. Right? It might be a bit unclear why it matters that it's sort of cloven-footed but not chewing the cud, and that makes an animal unsuitable for food. But what's not unclear is that you can't come into contact with the carcass of that kind of animal. Uh, you can't eat its flesh, right? Because coming into contact with death is uh, ritually defiling. And I think that maybe helps us understand some of the other laws in this chapter about discharges and skin disease, right? A, a discharge is, in a sense, dead matter, right? It's blood or, or other materials that are no longer vitally connected to the, to the body, right? Leprosy, skin disorders, it's kind of death working its way through your skin, in a sense, and so maybe that helps us understand some of, the, some of the reasoning here, right? If the tabernacle represents life itself, right, in all of its flourishing, in all of its beauty, in God's presence, right, then you can see why certain bodily pictures of death would be inappropriate for God's people. So you see that represented on either end of the chart. Over here in the tabernacle, you have life. Uh, over here, to be unclean is, is fundamentally about death. And so things that remind us of death, animal carcasses, discharges, skin diseases, they, they have the effect of making you ritually impure. You can't come into the life of the tabernacle. So thank you guys for the chart. Now, just to make it explicit, the point of this cleanliness code was not to make people feel ashamed of their bodies. It, it wasn't for people to feel gross about their natural bodily functions. Right? There's nothing shameful about childbirth or discharges. After all, God made our bodies. I assume those discharges were his idea. He made all those weird animals that are unclean to eat. So it's important that we get it straight that these laws are not about God being offended by our bodies. Instead, what they are is a powerful image they are a daily reminder, something woven into the everyday life of an Israelite, of the way that sin infects us and defiles us, right? How sin spreads naturally from person to person, 
right? Some of the laws here in Leviticus say, look, if you sit on the same cushion that an unclean person sat on, if you sit on their saddle, if you touch something they've touched, their uncleanness gets transferred to you. It's a picture. Sin is contagious in this world. Right? These laws are a powerful image of how sin keeps us at a distance from God's presence. Now, sin is described different ways in the law of Moses. In one sense, we see that sin is a simple transgression of God's command. God says, don't do that, and we do it. God says, do that, and we don't. But sin is also pictured as impurity. It's, it's a pollution. It's not just discrete acts of omission or commission. Sin is about being defiled. Sin is unnatural. It doesn't belong in God's good creation. And so it brings about death and decay. And so the laws here in Leviticus 11 to 15 give God's people a daily picture of the way that sin ruins everything, of the way that sin excludes us from God's presence, right? As sinners living in a sin-sick world, there's no way for us to avoid this kind of pollution. Just like a garbage man who spends his whole day on a truck is going to get that on him, right? These laws about ritual purity, they were impossible to keep. Right? Even if you wanted to, even if you were really trying, you're not in control 100% over, over what happens with your body or the bodies of other people. Right? And so these, these laws work as a reminder. Right? Just as no one would want to spend time around me after a day working on the trash truck until I cleaned up, right? in a much greater and more important way, you cannot go into God's presence polluted and covered in sin. Unclean. And friends, even if that sounds strange to us, I, I do think that as a society, even if we wouldn't admit it, we know this. Right? We feel guilty. We feel ashamed. We feel unworthy, haunted by the things that we've done, convinced that in some very real way we don't measure up. And I think we don't have any idea what to do about it. I mean, we have ideas, but they're just not good ones. Right? We take drugs. We drink to excess. We, we max out our credit cards. We, we stage and we carefully edit out our photos before we post them, right? Trying to present a better image to the world than the, the one that, that matches up with reality. Right? This is why we hide the truth about what's really going on in our lives and in our hearts. This is why we starve ourselves, cut ourselves, take any number of supplements and pharmaceutical concoctions to help you lose weight and look younger. This is why we, we normalize and celebrate sin in order to quiet down our consciences. Right? But like Lady Macbeth washing her hands, it, it never feels clean. Right? The guilt never, never gets washed away. And so these laws from Leviticus might seem strange to us. But the feeling of being unfit, unclean, defiled, stained, impure, I don't think that's foreign to us at all. And so these purity laws are a way of calling the people of Israel to ritual purity. And also a way of reminding them that in a, in a sin-cursed world with its childbirth and dead bodies and 
various discharges and skin diseases, you are ultimately going to get polluted by sin. You're going to get that on you. And you're going to, be need to, you're going to need to be made clean. Now, before we move on, let me just point out two things that I think are going to help us put these, these laws in Leviticus 11 to 15 into their proper context. The first is that the emphasis here in these laws is on ritual purity. And that's important. The idea is that the Lord gave his people these laws to teach them about a deeper, more serious defilement in their hearts by sin. So the point of these laws was never to create a series of rules and regulations that you could keep in order to be good enough to bring yourself into the presence of God. The point was never to focus purely on external conformity to certain rituals. The point was for God's people to see some glimpse of God's holiness, to have some sense of the pollution caused by their sin, and for them to long to have their souls cleansed so that they might flee to God for mercy and help. So more than a thousand years after God gave these laws to his people, this was a large part of the Lord Jesus' frustration with the Pharisees. The Pharisees loved Leviticus 11 to 15. That wasn't the problem, though. What they loved about it were the rules. They were obsessed with the rules. They made rules about how you were supposed to keep these rules. But what they had was no genuine love for the Lord. No longing to be purified within. No love for his ways. The Pharisees were rule keepers, but they were greedy. They were proud. They were cruel. And they thought the Levitical laws gave them cover. Gave them a way to be acceptable to God in the pollution of their sin. Even though their hearts were defiled in all sorts of ways. And so listen to what Jesus says to them in Matthew 15. This is Matthew 15, starting in verse 10. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Maybe skip down to verse 17. Jesus says this, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled, but what comes out from the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. This is what makes you unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands, as the Pharisees insisted on, does not defile anyone. You see the point. God cares about the holiness of our hearts. What really defiles us and makes us unclean and, and unfit for the presence of God is our anger, our greed, the vanity, the pride, the jealousy, the selfishness, the laziness, the perversion, right? All of those things that come out of us. Jesus says, that's what makes you unclean, right? It's the, if you will, the discharge of your heart that makes you unclean, not the discharge of your body, right? The Levitical purity laws were just meant to be a graphic picture and reminder of that fact. 
Right? This is why when you get to Mark chapter 7, Jesus declares all food clean. He says, look, you can eat whatever you want. That's not the point. Pigs themselves are not unclean. It's just a picture of what's going on in your heart. God actually isn't offended by what you eat. He's offended by what comes out of your mouth. And friends, that's a good reminder for religious folks like us. There is a way of taking God's good instructions here and using them as a weapon against him and other people. You can do a bunch of external things that have the appearance of obeying God, right? So in our context, that might be reading the Bible, coming to church, being on the right side of all the cultural issues, raising your kids the right way, giving your money to the right causes. But if you're not growing in real holiness, the way that God defines it, if you're not growing in self-control and love and humility and gratitude and gentleness and purity and kindness and patience, then friend, you've missed the point badly. The issue is not what's external to us, but what's in our hearts. The second thing I'd mention here is that the principle behind these chapters in Leviticus, they've, it's not gone away. In a very real way, it's great that we don't have to live under these laws anymore, right? Have a pork chop this afternoon to the glory of God, right? These laws were good and holy, but, but it, it, a burden has been removed from us in that we no longer have to, to worry about these laws. Discharges, childbirth, skin diseases, they don't make us sort of unfit to come to God anymore. But I think the worst way you could read these chapters in Leviticus would be to come away saying, whew, I'm glad God changed his mind. I'm glad he's not uptight like that anymore. I'm glad he's a bit more accepting and tolerant and realistic in his demands these days. Friends, no, no, no. I want to be abundantly clear that God has not changed one bit. His holiness has not diminished in the slightest. He is no less holy, no less glorious, no less dangerous for sinners now than he was 3,000 plus years ago. And friends, he will be no less holy, no less glorious, no less dangerous for sinners into eternity future. So when we get to the book of Revelation... We see that God is creating a new world, a new heaven, a new earth, with a new city where he will dwell with his people forever. What we see in Revelation is that, that tent, that camp back in Sinai in the wilderness 3,000 years ago, it was a shadow. It was just a little glimpse of the very real and eternal way that God is going to live with his people forever the way that we will experience his presence, his glory, his beauty, his care, his protection. And what we read about that future city that God is going to, to create is this, Revelation 21, 27. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable and false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Friends, the distinction between clean and unclean that we see introduced as a shadow here in Leviticus 11 to 15, that distinction continues into eternity. Right? The question is not our ritual purity, but our moral purity. So at the very end of the Bible, Jesus himself warns in Revelation 22:15, speaking of this city, outside are the dogs 
and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Friends, just like the impure, just like the defiled leper had to stay outside the camp of the people of Israel, away from the presence of God, so Jesus reminds us in some of the very last words in the Bible that the morally defiled, the impure, will be cast out of God's presence for all eternity. It has to be that way. Otherwise, it wouldn't be paradise. Otherwise, it wouldn't be heaven. It would just be this. Friends, this distinction between pure and impure, clean and unclean, it continues into eternity. God is no less concerned about our holiness. And that leaves one big piece of the puzzle left for us to get in place. And this is where I want to wrap up this morning. Because the bulk of Leviticus 11 to 15 is spent describing all of the things that make Israel ritually unclean. But that's not actually the headline. That's not really new news that people are impure and cannot come into the presence of God. That's been the case since Genesis 3, right? Since the Garden of Eden and mankind's fall into sin. No, the big news here in our passage is that the Lord has graciously provided a, a series of sacrifices and washings that can restore unclean people into his presence. The big news here is that God loves his people so much that he wants them to come to him. And he's made a way for that to happen. And these ways are kind and gracious. So a woman was unclean after childbirth, and so a sacrifice of a lamb was prescri prescribed uh, for her uh, to be made clean. But there's also an, an addendum there in Leviticus 12.8. We read this. If she, that is this woman who's just given birth, cannot afford a lamb, then she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. This, of course, is what we see Mary doing in Luke chapter 2. Right? But you're just reminded again, the Lord is not cruel. He's not hungry or greedy. He doesn't need their animals or sacrifices. He's not trying to put a crushing burden on them. And so he makes a provision here for the woman who's too poor to bring a proper offering. You know, a person for whom a, a lamb would be personally catastrophic. Right? The same was true for lepers. You see there in chapters 14, verses 1 to 32, an elaborate procedure for them to be declared clean and restored to the life of God's people and to his presence. The priests were told to go out and check on the lepers to see if they were clean. Right? They, they were there to help. The idea is that God wants these people restored. Again, you see a, a provision for the poor who can't, who can't offer the prescribed offering. Right, the point is clear. Leviticus 11 to 15 doesn't break ground by making people unclean and unfit for God's presence. That was already the case. These chapters just sort of uh, codify it. No, the big news here is that God is giving them a way to be clean, a way to be restored to him. Right, the Levitical system of sacrifices and, and washings in the tabernacle was, was a gift from God so that his people could be restored to his presence. And so I think the best reason for us as a church family to spend time thinking about passages like Leviticus 11 to 15, is that it's in that way that they show us so clearly the, the nature of the work of the Lord Jesus. In fact, 
you know, just reading through the Gospels this week, it's really hard to make sense of most of what's going on in the Gospels if you're not familiar with the book of Leviticus, right? Half the time, what's happening in the Gospel accounts of Jesus' life is in some way a response to or a reaction to the, the law as we see it here in Leviticus. And so as we conclude this morning, let me point you to a couple of stories in the life of Jesus, particularly in Luke's gospel. One of them we've already read earlier in our service from Matthew's account. But in Luke chapter 5, we read this about Jesus. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Okay, so this is an open and shut case of ritual impurity. Luke is a physician by trade here, and he tells us this guy, he's not just a leper, he is full of leprosy. I don't even know what that means, but it sounds horrible, right? This guy is full of leprosy. And so he comes to Jesus, and he asks to be made clean. And there's no provision for this in Leviticus. You read through these chapters, there is no instruction for healing leprosy. There are only instructions for someone to be ritually cleansed once their body healed itself. But the one thing that's abundantly clear is that this guy is not supposed to be anywhere near people. Remember we read earlier, they stay outside the camp with torn clothes, long hair, covered mouth, shouting unclean, get away from me. This guy was supposed to stay at a distance because to touch him, meant that you became unclean, right? You probably would get his leprosy or his skin disease. And then, and then you're in the same spot as him. You're outside the camp. Okay, so put a pin in that story. Now look at Luke chapter 8. A man named Jairus comes to Jesus, and he asks him to come, to hurry, because his daughter is sick and on the point of death. And on the way to Jairus' house, the crowds are pressing in, and we read this in Luke 8, 43. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, though she'd spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Okay, again, we know what to do with this. According to Leviticus, that woman is unclean. She's like the most unclean person ever. She's been unclean actively for 12 years. Again, Luke, the physician, says, look, she spent all her money on doctors. No one could help. She is a walking, talking picture of ritual impurity. Right? She, is a, she is a picture of our sinful condition. And again, you cannot touch her because impurity is contagious. Right, Leviticus 15, verse 7. Whoever touches the body of the one with the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean himself until the evening. Right, there's even a verse following that that says, if an unclean person spits on you. Right, there are verses, if you sit on their cushion or on their saddle, you become unclean for the rest of the day. Meanwhile, the little girl that Jesus was going to heal, she dies. And so Jesus arrives at the house, and again, it's a scene of ritual impurity. A dead body defiled you. Right? According to the law, touching a dead body made you unclean. So three encounters with unclean people. A leper, a woman with a discharge, and a dead body. So what does Jesus do with the leper? Luke 15, verse 13. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. 
And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded. That's our passage for this morning, for a proof to them. With the woman who had a discharge that could not be healed by any doctor, no matter how much money she spent, we read there in Luke 8, 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. And with the dead girl, Luke 8, 54. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once. And he directed that something should be given to her to eat. Brothers and sisters, if you don't, if you don't know Leviticus 11 to 15, you don't understand why this is shocking. Jesus touched the leper. Who knows the last time this man had felt the physical touch of another human being? Right, but we're good Jews. We've read Leviticus, and so we're reading this story, and we're thinking, Jesus, don't do it. Don't touch him. You're going to be unclean. Jesus allows this woman to touch him. And we're thinking, now, Jesus, you're unclean. Jesus reaches out to touch this dead girl. And we're thinking, all right, Jesus, now you're defiled. But what happens? They're made clean. When Jesus touches them, they're healed. They're brought to life. You and I come into contact with a sinful world. We're defiled. Jesus comes into contact with a sinful world. And he makes it clean. See, Jesus' miracles, they serve the same function as the purity code here in Leviticus did. Those laws in Leviticus make it clear that we are not right with God. And Jesus' miracles make it clear that he's the one who can fix that problem. He's the one who can restore us. He's the one who can do something the Levitical law never imagined. Not just make you clean, but heal you of the disease. He did that by dying for us on the cross. There on the cross, he took on himself our impurity, our perversion, our defilement, our sin. He suffered the consequence of our disobedience to God, and he rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. And now he gives his righteousness, his moral purity to anyone who will come to him in humble repentance and faith. Jesus cleanses our soul from sin's defiling stain. He makes us righteous in God's sight, qualified to come into his presence. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. The author of Hebrews makes the point that Jesus was crucified outside the city. 
Well, who else is outside the city? The ritually impure, the lepers, the outcasts. The author of Hebrews says that's where Jesus went to die on the cross. For what purpose? Well, he tells us there, in order to sanctify the people. Remember the chart? Only sanctified things, only consecrated, holy things, things that have been set apart are allowed in God's presence. And the author of Hebrews is saying that's exactly what Jesus has done for you by dying for you outside the city, by taking on himself your defilement and your impurity. The point of Leviticus 11 to 15 is that you are not clean. As a sinner living in a sin-sick world, you've got it all over you. It's a problem that goes way deeper than whatever may come out of your physical body. It's a disease. It's a rot. It's an infestation. It's a black mold that has taken up residency in our soul. But there's good news. You can bring it to Jesus. And he knows what to do with it. He knows how to make you clean. He died so that he might heal you and sanctify you and restore you. And brothers and sisters, that's what we celebrate at the Lord's Supper. You can't come to this table based on your own righteousness, your own purity. None of us would be qualified to come and commune with God on that basis. No, we come to the table as those who have been cleansed, as those who were far off and alienated and impure and corrupted in our sin. We come as those who have been sanctified, who have been made holy by the broken body and shed blood of Christ. And so now we're not kept away from God, but are welcome to his table. So let's pray together and let's come and celebrate all that we have in Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you are glorious in your holiness. We delight in, in just how pure and unapproachable you are. But we also delight in your love. For if you weren't gracious and merciful, we would have no hope of knowing you and living with you forever. We thank you for the gift of the Lord Jesus, the perfectly pure one who is able to to bear our iniquities, to bear our sins, to bear our impurity, to heal us and cleanse us. Holy Spirit, would you give us great joy as we come now to the table? Would you help us to live lives of holiness in light of all that we have in Christ? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.